0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined once again by Jessica Nickel who is the executive director of the Policy Addiction Forum, whose mission it is to ensure that addiction is treated as a disease, elevate awareness around addiction, and improve national policy through a comprehensive response that includes prevention, treatment, recovery, and criminal justice reform. So once again, Jessica. Welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay. So we didn't quite finish our discussion last time. We we got into the area of risks and protection factors, and started talking about actually your background and your experience. and And one of the questions that I ask you about is, to what do you attribute the fact that you you've emerged out of such a difficult past, a difficult upbringing? And here you are, a very successful and accomplished entrepreneur in your own right. And we went down the path. You you mentioned the fact that your grandmother was a key to that. I'd like to come back to that question, the second key. So I got involved in this field because of my
2: parents' um, struggles with substance use disorders, opioid use disorders um, so
1: they' both gone now they
2: are both gone now I lost yeah. both of my parents. My mom had nineteen years in recovery when I lost her a few years ago. My dad died in um two thousand and one um, He was trying to to you know find treatment and and was interested but uh um sadly he he um he didn't make it that far, so we lost him, and he was still on the streets. Um,
1: and he was on the streets for a very long time. He was. He 25 was. years? Yeah, it, was a,
2: it was a long time. I think he yeah. was 48 when he passed away. Um, and he um really proud of him that he found that will to try at the end, and we just didn't have enough time left over um, to, to get him there. But it, it, it's it's so interesting that the, um, so for me, both parents, um, I was placed with my grandparents as, um, as my guardians when I was eight.
1: We were both addicted to heroin. They
2: were both addicted to heroin. A um, lot of homelessness, hunger, lots of law enforcement engagement. My mom went to prison. My dad was in and out of jail.
1: You guys lived in cars.
2: Yeah, we were in foster care for a bit, which was not a lot of fun, Um um, and placed in a facility not in a foster care home, just because of the unique needs of my sister and I. so um, it was it was a tough go of it. Um, there's lots of alienation and stigma even on the children of addicts. Um, I hate the the A word, but I'll use it for this. I remember being a uh, I'm in high school and I'm like the nerdiest high schooler that you can think of who. You know does really well and i'm 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 pretty focused and i I still have some of that stigma- stigma attached to me because of my parents' substance abuse where certain people can't be my friend or invite me places because years ago this is what my parents struggled with, so that stigma attaches not just to the individuals with a substance use disorder but definitely to their their children. My least favorite saying in the world is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because of of how many times that was used in really harmful ways towards me and my family, right? So sad. So when you have all of these, this constellation, these are risk factors. Um, Everything from parents divorcing, child welfare engagement, instability, poverty, crime. Um, All of these are, are pretty substantial risk factors when you look at um, sort of youth developments in any of these programs, but it, it's it's more complex than that. And I, I feel like um, we need to look at this t- three dimensional. And what it, this is really a triangle, right? You have three main points to really focus on um, on on what your likelihood is, or how how do you navigate these difficult paths to make sure that our children. I use this towards my three kids as well. Um, how do we navigate this? And so you know you have. Sort of the genetic side and genes, so that's that's one component. I probably have a very high likelihood um, because of my um, my parents, and so I have known about that. And I made sure that I did not engage or even drink at a young age because of my genetic predisposition, or what I imagined to
1: be. Is so you made that conscious decision at a very young age. How old? I, How old were you when you made that decision? I'm not going to drink.
2: Um, you know, I my. Show and tell content for my um, kindergarten presentation was explaining to my peers the difference between good drugs and bad drugs. So no. kindergarten, think, yeah, kindergarten, and I think my my uh, Mrs. Dean, my kindergarten teacher, tried to edit me a little bit on what I really probably wanted to to overshare with the class. But I've always been an oversharer, so I think I sort of knew a very young young age. My grandma did a very good job of you know hate the disease, not the person that's inflicted with that disease, but also. Um, imparting on that I have a um, susceptibility here, a potentially susceptibility where I should delay the onset and be very clear that my genes might not be like yours and I should be a little bit more careful. So that's one of the key components. The other two are one is your environment and two are your individual factors. Now in each of these, there are uh, both sides of, of this there are both protective and risk factors. So let me explain just very, very briefly. On the environmental side, which you don't always have a lot of control over, right? Um, The risk factors, like I said, can be poverty, crime, drug availability, um, sort of instability, and also the community norms. Does does your community normalize, um, you know, teenage drinking or um, norm- normalize sort of using substances to alter mood or for social engagements that can make it harder right because your environment is a, a, a the norms in your environment may not be conducive to delaying sure. onset or prevention but there can also be those positive norms that you set up Did, does, does your community set good norms for your middle schoolers and your high schoolers do you um, sort of work on um, sort of crime, drug availability. Um, all, all of those can have a positive, a protective impact on your environmental side. On the individual side, these are where um, we need to be cognizant of that this is a balance. There are two sides of this scale in each of these, right? So I might have had a lot of risk factors, right? Parental substance abuse, instability, child welfare engagement, um, child abuse and neglect um, uh, with child protective services being engaged um, a, lo- a lot of, of stuff that um, and I get very sensitive when we talk about our, our kids our children that are impacted by parental substance abuse and they should never be looked at as lost causes or having too much that is heaped up on the, pro- the risk side because there's the protective side for every risk factor I had I had four protective factors that balanced out and ended up um, I think negating and, and giving me the chance to be successful and healthy and find my pathway out. Um, I may have been in foster care because of my parents' substance abuse. I did really well. I had the necessary protective factors. Um, that got me out of that path and, and onto a better one. I went to Princeton, graduated with some cool awards. I came to DC and have had really cool jobs in public policy. I have three healthy, well-adjusted kids. I run my own company and started a nonprofit because it's my passion. So I, I, I think I'm a pretty, I got a ways to go. So, uh, you know, ho- hopefully I get to do some additionally cool stuff in, um, in my career, but I have done well because um, it is not only the side of risk factors. It is a balancing act between risk and protection. Some of my protective factors were that balance that out. Um, there may have been foster care and some neglect issues, um, but I was um, put into counseling um, by our county. Uh, uh, once I sort of came out of the child welfare system, um, you know, sort of assigned um, clinicians and amazing counselors um, to to meet with weekly or to, several times a week, or sort of the entire time through my development, which continued.
1: What made him amazing? The counselors.
2: I mean, counseling were, gets a bad
1: rap. Yeah. So they, they,
2: and it shouldn't. I I strongly believe that um, any sort of trauma or PTSD or neglect situations, you need to make sure that you find the appropriate clinic, clinician for that individual. I had some great psychologists. Um, that engaged with me and my little sister, and gave us um, the tools that we needed, and worked through um, sort of all those things that happened to give us some some better tools to manage things, coping mechanisms, um, yeah, sort of active listening, having another caring adult in our lives. That's another protective factor. Mm-hmm. The number of caring adults that you have in your life is a huge protective factor for all children. So not only did I have this great, um, I had I had Sandy and Janet. I don't remember their last names because I don't think they're. I just called them Sandy and Janet. So I'm coming out of um, a foster care system and with my grandparents. But I have these really committed clinicians that were amazing. At the same time, they assigned us a big sister through the big sister program. Big brothers, Mm -hmm. big sisters. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, I'm like, I don't know, 9 or 10 years old. I meet... The first person I've ever met you know, in my personal life that has graduated from college, her name's Lisa, and I'm, I idolize her. And we do cool stuff like museums and poetry readings, and I have another caring, loving, um, protective adult in my life that's a protective factor. Another huge protective factor is called attachment. What are the things that you are attaching to, that you are engaged to, that you feel a sense of belonging with? We were very involved in our church, um, and my grandma made sure that from our girls friendly society, which was like the Girl Scouts, but through the Episcopal church to camps to being an acolyte and being engaged in our church program that's an attachment being attached to your school from you know writing for the school newspaper to being involved in student government, to I created a uh you know different clubs or were involved in different clubs and and programs in my high school, that's called an attachment to positive things um, in, in your life, in your community that are a protective factor. It also leads to the next protective factor, which is called pro-social engagement. It's the opposite of isolation is to be pro-socially engaged. And you can see the difference between you have sort of an isolated adolescent versus one that it isn't about the things for a resume that you engage in. It's about the feeling of pro-social engagement, of belonging that creates from that activity. That's for my children as they enter the teenage years, that's what I focus on. What are you what do you belong do you feel like you belong to? What, how are you pro-socially engaged? Um, And that is an amazing protective factor. And I had um, a whole array of those from church activities to school activities. Then I found a community coalition um, through a drug-free communities coalition. I found one of those. It's another community for me to be attached to, post-socially engaged, have loving, committed adults um, that I'm connected to, modeling great behavior and showing me a different path out. So when people ask, how did you turn out pretty darn well, Jess, considering it was a bit of a tough start uh, in the beginning, it's science. My protective factors um, outweighed the risk factors that I had on the field.
1: Wow. That's profound.
2: Thank you. It's it's, It's so simple, and we have these amazing scientists and great literature that really lays this out. And I think if we start sharing this information with more parents and educators and people in the field, it changes the way we should look at any children that are impacted by addiction. It is not hopeless. Um, it, it's not t- too sort of tall of an order to fill. There are ways to make sure that we get around this and give them a fair chance.
1: Wow, that is tremendous. That's that's quite a message. Um, before we conclude, do you have any last comments on, you know, for advice to... Um, parents in particular who maybe um, have loved ones that they're raising and they're, you know, they want to protect them, obviously, from, you know, they're, they're going down this path. Any any last advice for uh you might share? That's a really great question.
2: Um, I do have some advice. The number one is um, I'd follow my grandma's lead and teaching compassion um, to to children in particular about learning to hate the disease and not the person that's struggling with it, Um, because I think that does help you sort things out and um, understand it, even as a child and a young child, in a a better way. Um, The second is um, genetics do play a role. And so I think The earliest you can begin talking to your kids, to your grandkids, to your nieces, your nephews, your own children, if you're in recovery um, or struggling, is to talk about our family is more susceptible to alcoholism and substance use. And that means I need you to be more careful and aware of this. And the second to that is prevention is not about prevention, just simply. It's not a knee jerk, don't ever drink, don't ever use marijuana, don't ever use drugs, um it's about delaying the onset. And when you have use in your family or a history or sort of a genetic predisposition, that makes this even more important, Um, not in just my opinion, but according to these brilliant scientists and great literature. So our job as caregivers, um, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles is to delay the onset of first use, particularly for this population. We know that girl brains grow up around 22, and boy brains are developed at 25. So you need to make sure that that first alcohol use or engagement with marijuana, that needs to happen much closer to those ages than any time close to high school. I did not drink alcohol until I turned 21 years old, and that is one of the most important protective factors that I had on the field, in all honesty. Um, So making sure, remember, just delaying the onset, um, a 35-year-old drinking and having sort of socially, um, um, you know, access to alcohol or other substances is very different from a 13-year-old. So making sure we're aware of. Your your job is to explain this. And with my kids, um, I started this very, very young. I have a 9 and 11 and a 13-year-old, and they have a mom that works in, you know, drug policy and for a, a addiction nonprofit, so they get large dosages of this. Sure. And they'll tell you, they're like, yeah, well, I have a, I have an, a kid brain, which means... I haven't formed my force field around my brain like my mom has, because she has an adult brain. So I need to make sure that I don't shoot at it with, you know, this is like a Star Wars metaphor. I, I don't do things to that brain that it can't handle before my, my force field is developed. So whichever analogies are going to work for your children, for your grandkids, for your family members, make sure that all use gets delayed as late as possible, including alcohol and marijuana. That is a huge Huge protective factor. And the other couple things is you need to make sure that you give kids strategies. These are the things you can say. Oh, sorry, my mom and my aunt drug tests me, so I can't. Uh, I can't do that with you. But I'm cool to hang out. Um, I'm sorry. I'm. I'm, I'm out. I, I have football practice in the morning. I don't do that kind of stuff. Ah, um, eh, you know, I'm good. Uh, not really my thing. It makes me feel kind of crappy. Whatever it is, make sure you train and talk to your kids about how they're gonna respond. Most of us, even grownups, think of the, the dumb things that you've agreed to volunteer for or you know get involved with even with your friends because you don't know what to say and we end up saying yes and you know, you're you involved in, in one other activity or one other commitment or one other. It's the same for kids. So make sure that you're training them to understand how they're going to respond if and when these things do happen. Parental monitoring is the other major protective factor. You need to know where your kids are and be very clear about who's there and what's happening and what your expectations are um, and make sure that there's there's no sort of um, so g- give on that. And the last one is expectations. Um, I am not as interested in an athlete or a superstar Hollywood actor um, or someone else that's famous talking to kids about substance use prevention because that doesn't work. What works is parents sending very clear um, expectations and consequences and letting them know what they want for their kids. You don't have a force field around your brain. I do not want you to drink. These are my expectations of you. Here are the consequences if you do do X, Y, or Z, and just making it very clear what you expect. We, we tend to avoid things that are uncomfortable, um, talking about our, our own use or our own um, history, or how can you say that you don't want me to drink, and I'm 16, and you just you know, had a beer at dinner. There are ways to navigate those conversations um, and some great toolkits that are out there to help parents um, with primers and prep for these conversations. But having that conversation and be very, being very clear about your expectations is a huge protective factor for adolescents.
1: Wow. Well, once again, thank you so much for your insight and for your time today. I really appreciate it, Jess. Thank you. Okay. We've, uh, we've been joined once again by Jesse Nickel, the executive director of the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.